As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. If you're looking for some new podcast merch, head to podswag.com to shop the brand new Bad With Money collection. The collection includes a mug, a bunch of enamel pins, and a signed copy of Bad With Money, the book. You can even purchase the book and pins in a bundled set. Oh, and the pins are so cute, and the mug is hilarious. Just take a look at it. You gotta shop the collection today at podswag.com slash money. That's podswag.com slash money. Take a look. I designed them. They're super funny and cute. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Moolah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it, or what to do with it, or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. Hey, Deadbeats. It's Gabby Dunn, and this is Bad With Money. I'm about to get furious this week, so hang on. Because we are in a humanitarian crisis right now. And there are people, domestically, who are in concentration camps. And yes, I am saying that because my entire fucking family died in the Holocaust. So I think that I have some knowledge of what a fucking concentration camp is. And there is something that I didn't know about the Holocaust. Which is that money was a huge means of control. 
So the value of money exists in our imaginations. Obviously, there's nothing inherently valuable in the coins and paper in our wallets. But we agree that money means something. So that collective belief makes it true. And money is an incredibly powerful tool for control. If you have it, you have power over your own life and potentially the people around you. If you don't have it, you're screwed. But if you think you have a chance of getting it, you will put up with a lot. This week, we're talking to Santi Elijah Holly, a journalist in Portland who wrote an article earlier this year in Topic Magazine that scared the shit out of me. It is also about physical currency as power, but it gets much, much darker from there. Santi's article, The Hidden History of Holocaust Money, which you should all read, described a system of money that I had no idea existed during World War II. A special economy of Jewish ghetto and concentration camp currency designed by the Nazis to create an illusion of normalcy in the most horrific of times. Sound familiar? This illusion of normalcy is how we become complacent and calm while everything goes to shit around us. The economic attack on the Jews began years before the death camps. The ramp-up, laws were passed taking away their rights to work in certain jobs, to go to school, to be citizens, to be citizens. In 1938, Hitler's regime passed a law requiring German and Austrian Jews to surrender their assets over a certain amount, about $34,000 in today's money. So if you had more than that, you had to give that to the Nazis. In 1939, Jews began to be forced into ghettos. And this is where these new currencies, really just scrip or coupons that meant absolutely nothing, came to be. It's not slave labor, the Nazis could say. The Jews are being paid. They would sort of strip Jewish residents of their real currency that they had and of their assets. And they, and in turn, that they would give them this sort of made-up, I mean, almost play money that they could only use within the, the particular uh, ghettos or concentration camps. The, this money was only really good for in their particular camps. It sort of, sort of, sort of kept them sort of subservient. So yeah, so um, this article sort of just explored the history of that and then why the this money was created, how it was distributed, and sort of how money is used to sort of keep a certain population's subservience and sort of uh, in control of the ruling party, in this case, the Nazi party. Yeah. So, I mean, my first thought was like, why were concentration camp prisoners even given these this money, which you describe as kind of like coupons where they could they could use it for like cigarettes or um, wh- they were given it after all of their stuff was taken away. And I feel like it, it made sense to me only when it, it kind of was explained as like, okay, well now, but you do have money, like trying to make the the concentration camp or the ghetto seem like a normal society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it also just, it, it I mean, like it, it incentivized work. I mean, because they did rely on Jewish labor and to give them uh, the, these these prisoners and the occupants of the ghettos and the concentration camps to give them this sort of, Script or like you know, it's also been called prize coupons or premium coupons. Uh, it, it was essentially just script they could use at the stores, you know, and buy cigarettes or food or clothing. But yeah, it was all just to to give this sort of illusion of a functioning society. Yeah, so they don't believe that they're slaves, basically. 
Right, right, and it just it just keeps them working. And they'd also, I mean, in the in the concentration camps in in, in Auschwitz and other camps, they would actually have their prisoners do different work for different private corporations outside of the camps, and in turn, they would get paid in this this script. But it was sort of just a way to keep them active, keep them engaged, um, and also. It, also just sort of to give a, a better face to the international community because the international community was looking at these camps and these ghettos and they were they, they didn't want to just give this appearance of we have we have slaves they wanted to give the appearance of oh no they are employees we are paying them you know see, you see like we are giving them this this money that they can use however they see fit which is really sort of just a farce and sort of just like a, you know, it was all just a show for not just for the Jewish occupants, but also for the international community when they'd come and, and, and inspect or just look at these camps. Yeah. And the, the value of the money would change at the whim, basically, of the Nazi party. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was no real value. People, I, I heard one story where the coins, some of the coins in the Lutz ghetto, which was in mm-hmm. occupied Poland, some of the coins were so worthless that they would just burn it for fuel in some places uh, rather than just hold on to it because it was more valuable as a, as a fuel source than to actually purchase anything with. I wanted to go back to sort of the the part that you were talking about, the the corporate part, the capitalism of the Holocaust, because you talk about in the article the trail of corporate complicity that exploited the vulnerability of millions of people and collaborated with Nazi goals for the sake of profit. Um, can you talk about that a little bit, like the private entities and corporations that one of your interviewees talks about? Yeah. Uh, and the woman I spoke with, um, Marissa Natale, who is a student at Clark, who is um, tasked with uh, researching some of this history, she found that a lot of private German corporations, businesses would uh, hire, well, not so much hire, but they would ask the Nazi party, the Reich, to send them prisoners to work for them. And that, that work usually entailed uh, digging ditches, just, just manual labor. So it was usually digging trenches, digging ditches for rail lines. Jewish prisoners would be sort of farmed out to these corporations. Yeah, so it was it was the corporations. I mean, regardless of the specifics, the idea that companies were like happy to pay in script essentially in useless money to uh, have all of this labor done is essentially them using slave labor. I just feel like, okay, so the article struck me because I feel like this resonates with the U.S. today with a lot of the ways that we treat people in poverty today. Were you, when you were writing this, did you did you feel like there were so many parallels? I do feel like money is money is itself kind of farcical. I mean, it is sort of it, it fluctuates and and in in the way that we use it and who controls it. I mean, who controls the money sort of has control over populations and and how how money is distributed and who has access to to resources. And so, yeah, I I feel like. Just looking at currency in general, I mean, to, to 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 talk about currency as being either real versus phony sort of depends on who's defining those words and who's creating the currency itself. I mean, there's been so many cases of, I mean, if we look at American history and there is Confederate currency, it's just sort of, and that was used only in Confederate states and it, 
and it was this thing of why is this created? Like who is creating currency? Who is who is making the terms of money, and for what reason? And it's usually yeah because we are hoping to control marginalized groups by deciding who gets to have access to what currencies and how much and where where they can use it and where they can spend it. Yeah, I mean, it made me think too of like um, welfare or like, you know, food stamps, like things that we've, you know, especially food stamps and stuff like that, that we've created the value of. It just struck me as particularly resonant. Um, and so I wanted to also, like you mentioned, the illusion of normalcy, which I I was also, again, struck by how this is very similar to what's going on in the U.S. today, which is like, you know, I think the control of of the Jewish people's money happened sort of slowly. And a lot of these things were allowed to become normal and they were implemented slowly and they were kind of covered up by like distractions, right? Where you said that one of the ghettos had concerts and plays and sporting events. Yeah, it happened slowly, gradually. And, and then it happened really quick. Um, yeah, the I think beginning maybe with the Nuremberg race laws, uh, in 1935, which stripped German Jews of their rights, disenfranchised them, denied them citizen citizenship in the Reich, um, and so that was sort of the beginning of stripping them of of, of their citizenship and making them second class citizens. But then, in 1938, was when Jews in Germany were required to disclose their assets and anything above a certain level. Uh, they had to turn over to the Reich. Uh, and then at that point, it, just, it sort of became normalized that they were expected to do this, and they were then placed into uh, ghettos, and their their money and their goods were taken from them. But there's never any sort of just they didn't come right out and say this is what we're doing. It was just they had to give the the illusion of this is normal, this is wartime, this is uh you know for everybody's benefits. Um, yeah, so even in um, the Theresienstadt ghetto, which is the one that was sort of held up by the Nazis to be the most, to give the illusion to the world of the most sort of normal. They had, like you said, they had concerts, they had schools, they had stores, but Jews were not allowed to to leave. Uh, and they had this this fake, this, this currency. And they sort of gave, it was all sort of giving the illusion of normalcy to keep their mission sort of rolling. And they, the currency, especially in Theresienstadt and in the Ludge ghetto, was even designed, uh, as I mentioned in the article, is designed sort of with the population in mind, with the, with the Jewish residents in mind. So there was uh, images that w- might be familiar to them. Um, There's a Star of David. And there was a, an image of Moses. But this sort of uh, the subtle, sinister uh, images where there, the Star of David's were were linked to resemble barbed wire. And so it's sort of, in in the image of Moses was was designed to look sort of stereotypically Jewish. So it was it was very um, kind of just you know it was it was designed with them in mind, but also designed just to remind them that they were prisoners. Yeah, I want to go back to that, but I also uh, about the design. Uh, but do you, so I mean, someone listening to this, like I'm Jewish, uh, and my family is Holocaust survivors. And so someone listening to this might who does isn't that familiar might be like, 
well, why didn't anyone freak out about this? Like, why, you know, you're giving part of your assets, you're doing all this. You mentioned that, you know, the government was sort of like, well, it's wartime and this is what we need to do. Like, was that, I mean, and there were resistance fighters, but like, every, was everyone just sort of like chill with this? I, I, that's, I mean, that's the question, you know, that we've, and we've, I think, asked for many years is how, how did this happen? And how, why didn't everybody just, just refuse? But I, I don't think that's, that was an option. I mean, I, I don't think it was easy. It's just, you know, why didn't, why did they go along with this? I mean, I think they didn't have, I didn't think they didn't have a choice. I mean, they were required uh, by law to do this under threat of either arrest or death. So, even though that they knew that this was wrong, I'm sure they, I'm sure they didn't, they weren't happy about it. But I mean, what what other choice did they have? And I think that's the, you know, what we've always been asking ourselves about about the Holocaust and about that time is is how did this, you know, why didn't people just say no? But I, I don't, I don't think it was that easy. Yeah, I and it's sort of uh, again like dovetails with today, where it's groups that don't have the power. They just don't have the the power to do that. They don't have the resources. They don't have um, – they're, they're at a complete disadvantage to like, I mean, ICE or the cops or, you know, anything. Like it's, it's a thing where you might ask why didn't they do anything, but why didn't anyone else do it? You know, like why didn't the people that weren't affected do anything? Um, so the story of, of Peter Kine, the Jewish artist – um, so he, so they had Jewish artists design the money, which is very fucked up, <laughs> but, um, so how, so, and also you mentioned how it was designed and there's also a part where you say that they had Moses holding the tablets and obscuring the phrase thou shalt not kill, which is also so like everything you described about the designs of the money is so fucking creepy and ominous. Can you talk about, uh, Peter a little bit, the, the artist? Um, Peter Keen was—he was an artist. He was a playwright. He was educated in uh, universities there, um, and he was was an established artist and, and playwright. Uh, he was an occupant of Theresienstadt. Uh, once, when when the Jews were placed in, in in the different ghettos, he was placed into Theresienstadt, and the the Nazi party knew that he was an artist because he was—I mean—he was. I mean, he was Maybe not renowned, but he was a, he was an established artist, so they they were familiar with him, uh, and so so the high ranking Nazi official who was sort of uh, in charge of of the ghettos, uh, Reinhard Heydrich, he approached um, Peter Keen and uh, asked him to well asked him to made you know told him to design these banknotes and and to put. Moses on the bank note themselves, uh, and so he did. So he drew, he drew a sketch of of Moses, um, and then brought it to to Heydrich, and Heydrich uh, turned down his first design and told him to redo it, and told him to told him to give Moses uh, long, longer, more slender fingers, more hooked nose, like a larger hooked nose. And yeah, and to have his fingers sort of cover up a particular part of the the tablet, the law that read "Thou shalt not kill," and that's sort of a sort of a weird, you know, like why even do that? And that seems so obvious. And I'm not I'm not sure why why Heydrich wanted to make that so obvious. 
feel like just to be tor- just to torture. It's just like psychological torture. Was that the process that was used to design all the money? They would get like a Jewish artist to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, why they didn't all have drawings, sketches, portraits of of Moses or of other people. A lot of them would just have the the um, denomination. Uh, usually, maybe a, a Star of David, um, so the the name of the ghetto uh, or the camp. Yeah, to make sure that they couldn't use it at any other camp. So this is the other thing, and I think people would be surprised that a famous artist would be put into a ghetto, would be put, you know, you assume, well, no, but they're not going to come for, like, the the big people. Uh, but they they did, and then I feel like they had them design the money, again, as, like, an illusion of normalcy. Like, look, we're letting a Jewish artist design this money, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Is like, no, there's there was no uh, – they didn't care who was in the ghetto. It wasn't like, a, oh, it's, it's, it's amazing. Why was there this, this well-known artist who was uh, placed into the – I mean, they were all placed into the ghettos or camps. And there was no allowances for people just based on their, like, renown or, or their fame or their talent. They were just all sort of thrown in there together. Um, and, and especially that – that ghetto itself, as I said, was sort of held up. So Treisenstadt was uh, established in 1941, 30 miles north of Prague in what is now the Czech Republic. Um, and it was a huge, I mean, it was huge. there's 150,000 occupants. 150,000. Like, think about that number of people. I mean, it was a, it was a walled town. It was, it was basically like, I mean, it was essentially a fortress town. It was walled, but it was a little, I mean, there was... Yeah, people lived there. They had shops there. I mean, they they lived out their lives in this ghetto. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I think that we 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 miss the fact sometimes when we talk about these these Jewish ghettos during the war. We think of them as maybe these little small enclosed areas, but they were huge. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many people there that it was it was a town into itself. I mean, it's just it's just crazy to think about. It. And there's there's Jews of thirty five different. Uh, nationalities all thrown in together too. It wasn't just from from Poland or from Germany. Mm-hmm. It was just all across you know occupied territory. And so it was also used. I mean, that Theresienstadt was used as sort of the model ghetto for international eyes and for and they and they filmed. They, they would like take photos and show them to the world because people were wondering what's going on. And so they would. That's why they had this these concerts and these schools and sort of just, sh- but then once people weren't looking, once the Red Cross left, when the Red Cross came and visited in, in 1944 and they, you know, cleaned up everything and, uh, but it was all sort of temporary just until the Red Cross left. And then it all kind of went back to the business of just sort of as a way station until the war was over, until Jews were sent to concentration camps or death camps. It was sort of just a place to keep them until Nazi party figured out what else to do with him. And that artist, Peter, Peter Kine, he, he died in Auschwitz, right? Yeah. Yeah. He was sent to Auschwitz and died there. So I wanted to, yes, let's talk about the beautification campaign. Cause you, cause also you go, well, on a world stage, like how, how could people have missed this? Um, and you write that they, they carried over 7,500 Jews to Auschwitz to to alleviate overcrowded conditions. Um, they tried to show people that like, oh, look, they're just living normal lives. But 
I think, do you think like, I mean, I don't know. It struck me as so relevant to today and to the use of concentration camps for the detention centers that we have now holding immigrants and asylum seekers. And I was like, do you think that like that sort of like access to truth or whatever, like what, I mean, I I guess we're seeing more of it, but I do feel like there is a, a similar sort of thing where, where you present to a world stage, like, no, no, they're, they're fine. But I feel like we're seeing now more that like, it's not fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, what we're seeing in, in detention centers has been going on for years and years. Now the world is getting access to getting, getting a glimpse of it. Mm -hmm. This isn't anything happening new right now. There are more people detained in these, in these detention centers, um, you know the numbers are maybe higher, but this has been going on, you know, for for years. But now we are all sort of witnessing it happen in real time, and we're we're aware of it, and it's being exposed for what it, what it's what has been, what has been for for a long time. And so there's something to be said for yeah, uh, just having access to it, having media access to something, having real access, not just the what they the picture that they are controlling. Yeah, uncovering the propaganda, which I think the the Nazis were able to to fool people with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can easily if you control. I mean, if you control not only the currency but the access to to the media, you've controlled the population. And I think that that's what you know we see today uh, on the border. And that's what we you know we've seen in these in, in during the World War II is just, and that's what we've seen in many different wars. It's who's if we don't see the reality of it, then we are basically just taking the propaganda that they are giving us as as truth. And then usually we don't find out until too late, until until much later. Once you know, once the doors have been sort of flung open, uh, what's been happening underneath our noses all this time? Right. That's true that for a lot of res- German residents also. And in, in, during the time, as I think a lot of them maybe didn't really realize or understand the severity of what was happening. I, th- I think, I don't think everybody was complicit. I mean, I think a lot, of, maybe a lot of people were complicit, but I don't think everybody really understood the, the, the enormity and the severity of what was happening. Just again, right underneath their nos- noses, right right next door. Um, they, they, you know, the Nazis intentionally kept them far away from, you know, where the residents were they kept what was happening sort of far away from them because they didn't want them to see them. Like they didn't want not just the international community, but even their own community and their own residents to really see what was, ha- what was happening, uh, what their government was doing. And I think that, yeah, that happens today. They, they, they would rather, we didn't see what's actually happening, uh, what, what our government is doing, you know, today. Yeah. And I'm sure that comes down to two, like, you know, I mean, this is veering, but like, redlining and like where, you know, uh, certain types of where like, this is where white people live and this is where black people live and that kind of like, uh, just like segregation that happens in, in, in a lot of cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we don't really know all that we know about, uh, other communities that we've never visited, you know, is what we see in on TV or in newspaper and magazines. You know, I mean, this is a, such a large country that, we could never, we can never experience firsthand uh, a different community, different population, even that from from our own. And we go, it's it's fine, but we don't know how they're being treated monetarily or how you know 
the ways in which they're receiving money are controlled or, you know, there's so still so much, like you said, ways that money controls. And and you mentioned you talk about it as um, economic marginalization, which we we've mentioned briefly. I mean, it seems to define itself in some ways, like where it's just like, we're going to make it harder for these people to get money. We're going to compensate them in, you know, in food stamps that they can't uh, use for anything else. We're going to make it like impossible for them to get a living wage, things like that, that just targets a specific community. And in a way, like, I mean, like I said, with food stamps, um, I mean, that is always sort of dangled uh, for people of lesser means is sort of, you know, we can take your food stamps away. We can, we can give you less. We can give you more. Uh, you have to jump through all these sort of bureaucratic hoops. Uh, and then you're also demonized for even uh, being on food stamps. Uh, that's sort of a way of keeping them, keeping people uh, dependent, even though they are marginal or, 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 or vilified for needing assistance. They're also at the same time, you know, kept dependent on this system by sort of dangling this this thing in front of them saying we can take this away we can you know we we have we control how much you're going to receive and that's survival for people you know it's sort of like to 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 do something as basic as is buying food for yourself I and mean, that's survival so to always sort of have that you just try to score some political points by saying we're going to do this we're going to do that we're going to make it harder for some people to get food stamps that's just using people's actual lives uh as a you know a political as for political gain yeah, it's as arbitrary as the the ghetto coupons. It just really resonated. Um, and also, uh, I'm just reading your own article back to you because I loved it. But it's like, there's a, a part of like, you know, and you talked about this a little bit, like if we escape, we have no money, we have no property, it's not the money's not good anywhere else. And so it's to discourage resistance. And also there's mention of like, you know, keeping people starving makes them less likely to resist. And keeping people in like harsh conditions like is that those were a lot of the ways to discourage resistance other than i think like you know the con- the concerts or the plays or whatever like i mean were there other ways of i mean money seems to be the main way that they were discouraging people from resisting that i mean yeah the the the, the currency the sort of the the illusion of of, no- of normalcy, but yeah, the the currencies that they distributed were, and uh, and to make it seem like it was special for them, yeah, it was to sort of placate uh, the residents. It was sort of it was it was to placate them, and not not just to discourage uh, resistance, but also to incentivize work because they were, I mean, they were still working and they were expected to work and contribute to the war effort, um, and so this the money was also just used to keep them. Working. I mean, not to say that they didn't have other ways of of uh, incentivizing work, but this was mm-hmm. probably the most the, the, the caused them the least headache to, to do this, and you know, probably the easiest method, um, just to sort of keep things moving. And like a right to work, like, well, I'm not I'm not a prisoner because I have right I have a right to work. Exactly. I mean, and I mean, prisoners do get. I mean, in, in, in American prisons do get. Uh, paid uh, like a pittance, you know, paid very little for their work that they that they do. I mean, not even close to enough um, to the work that they that they are expected to do. But they are. But prisoners today are still paid something, not much at all. But that and that too is sort of uh, 
you know, it 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 gives again the sort of illusion of uh, well, you're not you're not just a we're not we're not we're not using slave labor. Here's a few dollars. So clearly, you're not we're not using slave labor because here's you know you know we pay you a few cents an hour. Um, which you can only spend, you know, obviously here within the prison. So it's right. It's sort of similar that way. Like if you're paying somebody, even if it's almost nothing or next to nothing, you can say that you're not using slave labor. You, you are, you're paying employees. Um, so that's, I mean, that's pretty similar to what was happening then too. Um, so the assets that the Nazis took from from the Jews in uh, in 1938 and and onward, what were they used for? I think they were. Um, uh, used to fund the war effort. I think they were probably either sold. Um, I think if there's any uh, any any valuable jewels that were or or, or metals that were maybe melted down, um, redistributed throughout the economy. Uh, I don't I don't know exactly how these different. I, I, I assume that the money itself, the actual currency, the actual German currencies, were were uh, just. Put into the the pockets of the Reich um, and and the war and used to fund the war. Yeah, it's why a lot of I mean, it's why my family uh, doesn't have any like <laughs> like old mementos. Basically, it's why a lot of Jewish families don't. Yeah, you know what's what's also interesting, which I I, I was surprised to learn in writing this, was that a lot of um, survivors kept some of this currency with them after the camps were liberated and the war was over a lot of survivors kept some of this this camp money this or these this ghetto money uh with them uh for the rest of their lives and some of them donated the currencies to museums or to collectors um but it was important to some survivors to hang on to it, even though they knew it was you know worthless it was still the, kind of the only memento they had, the only thing that they, they could take with them when they uh, were liberated from these camps. So that was interesting. So it was, it, a lot of it has survived and a lot of it's being traded and and, and uh, has found its way to different museums. But there's people who I spoke with who have spoken with survivors themselves who, who kept this money all these years later um, just because it, it was all they had left after the war. Yeah, you you mentioned too that I, I I was interested in that paragraph because you mentioned it as a show of endurance mm-hmm. that they were keeping it to like prove that it happened and to prove that they made it out basically. Right, right. I mean, to, to, uh, that's the other thing is like to have proof. Otherwise, they just don't have they have their word, but they don't. We don't have they have the same sort of things to show people who weren't there afterwards or people who you know might not believe them that this happened. And, and even today, we, we don't really know that this currency existed. We, we probably, we wouldn't know if these survivors hadn't held on to it because everything was destroyed when the camps were liberated. They wouldn't have, you know, people who came in uh, just destroyed everything. And there was no, there's no uh, thought to, well, let's hang on to some of this because, you know, it's is so the survivors are sort of the responsible, responsible for, for showing the world that this is, this actually did exist. This happened. And, so a lot of that is, you know, it's partly a memento for themselves and also just, yeah, as proof that this is happening because how else are you going to know uh, that this even existed if it wasn't held on to all these years? Yeah, I could totally imagine. I totally understand leaving with it because you're just like, I got to uh, like the world stage doesn't know the extent of what happened and we got to 
you know, we we have to even just to yourself, like after a trauma, kind of sometimes you're like, I I need to keep this so I I know that this happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a reminder to yourself what you endured. If you sell, are you if people, I know you mentioned people donating, but if you wanted to, if you have this stuff and you wanted to sell it, like, ironically, how much does it go for now? Do you know? I, you know, there's, there's different numbers. Um, and I actually, uh, after writing the article and publishing the article, I got uh, some feedback uh, from some people I spoke with and others who uh, told me, which I didn't know before, but this is actually, this is really messed up, but that there's actually counterfeit uh, money being circulated also like on eBay or different websites, but there's, because you can, I mean, there's only, obviously there's, there's limited supply of this real currency. There are collectors who just, that's their, that's their, their passion is collecting different coins and different currencies from around the world and throughout history. And so they, they'll pay, you know, upwards of, you know, a few thousand dollars for a coin or, or, or higher. And, and there's websites that you can, you can shop, for this currency on, uh, but, and there's also coin shows. Like a lot of, a lot of these collectors, um, go to coin shows and, and purchase their collections there. But yeah, so there's, there's also counterfeiters who create this, uh, money and sell it for, for not as expensive online, uh, as the, as the real stuff. That's horrible. And so I, when I, was looking up how much, you know, how much this is going for online. Like, how if how could could you buy a coin from the Ludz ghetto, from Theresienstadt, just on, e- on eBay? Uh, and you can. But, which I didn't know until later, a lot of it is, yeah, is, is counterfeit. Is counterfeited. And so, it's like, there's people who are selling this stuff for, for cheap to these collectors. You know, you know a, lot of, a lot of them are sort of, like, a lot of people who are just getting started might not recognize a, a counterfeit um, coin or bill. Um, and, but how, what's the price range? Like what, you know, what do you see it going for? Um, and, and again, it's hard. I mean, I'm, I mean, I obviously don't know what's counterfeit and what's, what's real just by looking cause I'm, I'm not an expert on it. So I was looking at coins on eBay from Luds, uh, that were like four five, six dollars for a coin. And I was mm-hmm. like, and I was like, well, that's really cheap for something that's so, you know, valuable, Rare. I mean, valuable in its own way, um, to collectors. And so I, so I printed that, uh, and then I got the I got feedback from collectors who were like, "That's probably counterfeit." So I, w- I would say, I mean, I saw one bill from one of the ghettos uh, that was going for like forty five thousand dollars or something. It was just like ridiculous. It's probably like you know the only <laughs> the only existing one, and I was like, "Well, I mean that." That's probably real. That's so ironic, isn't it? God. Yeah, yeah. That is, that is almost used as like this this valuable. I mean, that's the thing. That's why I mean, currency. The, the value of of currency is so uh, I don't want to say meaningless, but you know, it fluctuates. Uh, so right now, and, and a lot of these coin collectors, a lot of these uh, numismatists um, who are who collect who study and collect uh, ancient coins, they a lot of them are Jewish, and a lot of them for them it's like a they have different reasons for for collecting these these currencies, and I'm sure you know a lot of it is just like the the historical nature of it, and also it's just like well somebody has to we have to keep this alive we have to keep this sort of this history going you know in the public consciousness but it's also a very you know so it's a personal thing but it's also I mean a lot of them donate their collections to museums so it's very much like this, this ongoing project of keeping this this uh, this history sort of alive 
Yeah. So I just kept uh, your the article was um, terrifying and was uh, just it, it it was like very I mean it was like a horror article to me because I, I imagine was the conclusion like that from people who read it or people who commented and and talked to you about it is it a similar conclusion that I came to which is just like it this this could very well happen slash is happening again. And it's this thing that we, we you know, you said it's not very well known, the whole money aspect of it. Um, and I would obviously like I have you on here because I, I want it to be more known because I think it's a perfect example of the situation repeating itself. Um, and was that kind of your conclusion? And was that the conclusion that like a lot of people were coming to? Yeah, I feel like it's it's one of those those subjects that I mean – when we talk about the Holocaust, we always talk about, oh, you know, never again, never again. But, I mean, it could very well easily happen again uh, if we don't notice the the signs. I mean, this, this didn't just happen overnight. You know, it was a very deliberate, slow, gradual uh, thing that, that, that played out. So these kinds of things, like, like creating, manipulating currency and taking currency from others uh, and their assets, I mean, that's a slow, gradual thing that, that – people can justify easily if they have you know during especially during times of war i mean that's 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 when people are much more willing to go along with sort of you know the status quo yeah because it's also this thing of like you know especially with the with the detention centers and concentration camps that are happening it's like uh you know the thing of well they they broke the law or you know these kinds of things that you're right, it goes slowly or even with like abortion laws. And then you're like, oh, well, that's just to put, you know, black and brown women into prison. And like, it's just these, it's just these things that I think people become, I think, you know, especially with like the ramping up, let's say of our government now. I mean, I think like something, I just was reading it and it was like something like this could start happening and everyone would just be like, well, but and I was like so fucking terrified. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and it it is happening. In, in a lot of ways, it is happening. And the people who were uh, placed into these camps and these ghettos, a lot of them were just like, "Well, what are our options?" I mean, and that's kind of what we have right now. It's like, "Well, what do we mm-hmm. what do we do?" I mean, we, we know this isn't right, and but what do we actually do about it? We might as well just go along with it and just hope for the best. I mean, we do that all the time. It's just sort of go along with it, hope for the best. Uh, and and trust that everything will turn out all right. But, you know, I mean, that's it, not until it's too late do we actually realize, like, oh, maybe we, you know, maybe that's, we should have been paying more attention to what was actually happening. I don't know. When we say never again, we have to mean it. So please donate to RACES, which is working to help uh, asylum seekers and immigrants who are being held in, yep, concentration camps. And just keep your eyes fucking open the way that Santi said, like, you just can't look away. Bad With Money is a production of Stitcher. Our show is produced and edited by Melissa Yeager-Miller and sound engineered and mixed by Andy Christens. Our associate producer is Kristen Torres and our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera and was written by Mike Kaplan, Zach Sherwin, and Jack Dolgen. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I'll talk to you next week. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.